Chapter Eleven of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Eleven. That night in Olaf's cabin, Alan put himself back on the old track again. He made no effort to minimize the tragedy that had come into his life. And he knew its effect upon him would never be wiped away, and that Mary Standish would always live in his thoughts, no matter what happened in the years to come. But he was not the sort to let any part of himself wither up and die because of a blow that had darkened his mental vision of things. His plans lay ahead of him, his old ambitions and his dreams of achievement. They seemed pulseless and dead now, but he knew it was because his own fire had temporarily burned out. And he realized the vital necessity of building it up again, so he first wrote a letter to Ellen McCormick, and in this place a second letter, carefully sealed, which was not to be opened unless they found Mary Standish, and which contained something he had found impossible to put into words in Sandy's cabin. It was trivial and embarrassing when spoken to others, but it meant a great deal to him. Then he made the final arrangements for Olaf to carry him to Seward in the Norden. For Captain Rifle's ship was well on her way to Unalaska. Thought of Captain Rifle urged him to write another letter in which he told briefly the disappointing details of his search. He was rather surprised the next morning to find he had entirely forgotten Rosalind. While he was attending to his affairs at the bank, Olaf secured information that Rosalind was resting comfortably in the hospital and had not one chance in ten of dying. It was not Alan's intention to see him. He wanted to hear nothing he might have to say about Mary Standish. To associate them in any way, as he thought of her now, was little short of sacrilege. He was conscious of the change in himself, for it was a rather amazing upsetting of the original Alan Holt. That person would have gone to Rosalind with the deliberate and business-like intention of sifting the matter to the bottom, that he might disprove his own responsibility and set himself right in his own eyes. In self-defence, he would have given Rosalind an opportunity to break down with cold facts the disturbing something which his mind had unconsciously built up. But the new Alan revolted. He wanted to carry the thing away with him. He wanted it to live, and so it went with him. Uncontaminated by any truths or lies which Rosalind might have told him, they left Cordova early in the afternoon, and at sunset that evening camped on the tip of a wooded island a mile or two from the mainland. Olaf knew the island and had chosen it for reasons of his own. It was primitive and alive with birds. Olaf loved the birds, and the cheer of their vesper song and bedtime twitter comforted Alan. He seized an axe. And for the first time in seven months, his muscles responded to the swing of it. And Ericsson, old as his years in the way of the north, whistled loudly and rumbled a bit of crude song through his beard as he lighted a fire, knowing the medicine of the big open was getting its hold on Alan again. To Alan, it was like coming to the edge of home once more. It seemed an age. An infinity, since he had heard the sputtering of bacon in an open skillet and the bubbling of coffee over a bed of coals, with the mysterious darkness of the timber gathering in about him, he loaded his pipe after chopping and sat watching Olaf as he mothered the half-baked bannock loaf. 
It made him think of his father. A thousand times the two must have camped like this in the days when Alaska was new, and there were no maps to tell them what lay beyond the next range. Olaf felt resting upon him something of the responsibility of a doctor, and after supper he sat with his back to a tree and talked of the old days as if they were yesterday and the day before, with tomorrow always the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow which he had pursued for thirty years. He was sixty just a week ago this evening, he said, and he was beginning to doubt if he would remain on the beach at Cordova much longer. Siberia was dragging him, that forbidden world of adventure and mystery, and monumental opportunity which lay only a few miles across the strait from the Seward Peninsula. In his enthusiasm he forgot Alan's tragedy. He cursed Cossack law and the prohibitory measures to keep Americans out. More gold was over there than had ever been dreamed of in Alaska. Even the mountains and rivers were unnamed, and he was going, if he lived another year or two, going to find his fortune or his end in the Stanovi Mountains and among the Kachuki tribes. Twice he had tried it since his old comrade had died, and twice he had been driven out. The next time he would know how to go about it, and he invited Alan to go with him. There was a thrill in this talk of a land so near, scarcely a night ride across the neck of Bering Sea, and yet as proscribed as the sacred plains of Tibet. It stirred old desires in Alan's blood, for he knew that of all frontiers the Siberian would be the last and the greatest, and that not only men, but nations, would play their part in the breaking of it. He saw the red gleam of firelight in Olaf's eyes. "'And if we don't go in first from this side, Alan, the yellow fellows will come out some day from that,' rumbled the old sourdough, striking his pipe in the hollow of his hand. "'And when they do, they won't come over to us in ones and twos and threes, but in millions. That's what the yellow fellows will do when they once get started, and it's up to a few Alaska jacks and tough nut bills to get their feet planted first on the other side. Will you go?' Alan shook his head. Some day, but not now. The old flash was in his eyes, and he was seeing the fight ahead of him again, the fight to do his bit in striking the shackles of misgovernment from Alaska and rousing the world to an understanding of the menace which hung over her like a smouldering cloud. But you're right about the danger, he said. It won't come from Japan to California. It will pour like a flood through Siberia and jump to Alaska in a night. It isn't the danger of the yellow man alone, Olaf. You've got to combine that with Bolshevism, the menace of blackest Russia, a disease which, if it crosses the little neck of the water and gets hold of Alaska, will shake the American continent to bedrock. It may be a generation from now, maybe a century, but it's coming sure as God makes light, if we let Alaska go down and out. And my way of preventing it is different from yours." He stared into the fire, watching the embers flare up and die. "'I am not proud of the States,' he went on, as if speaking to something which he saw in the flames. "'I can't be, after the ruin their unintelligent propaganda and legislation have brought upon Alaska. But there are salvation, and conditions are improving. I concede we have factions in Alaska, and we are not at all unanimous in what we want. It's going to be largely a matter of education.' We can't take Alaska down to the States. 
we've got to bring them up to us. We must make a large part of a hundred and ten million Americans understand. We must bring a million of them up here before that danger flood we speak of comes beyond the Gulf of Anadir. It's God's own country we have north of fifty-eight, Olaf, and we have ten times the wealth of California. We can care for a million people easily, but bad politics and bad judgment, both here in Alaska and at Washington, won't let them come. With coal enough under our feet to last a thousand years, we are buying fuel from the States. We've got billions in copper and oil, but can't touch them. We should have some of the world's greatest manufacturing plants, but we cannot, because everything up here is locked away from us. I repeat, that isn't conservation. If they had applied a little of it to the salmon industry, but they didn't, and the salmon are going, like the buffalo of the plains. The destruction of the salmon shows what will happen to us if the bars are let down all at once to the financial banditti. Understanding and common sense must guard the gates. The fight we must win is to bring about an honest and reasonable judgment, Olaf, and that fight will take place right here in Alaska and not in Siberia. And if we don't win... He raised his eyes from the fire and smiled grimly into Olaf's bearded face. Then we can count on that thing coming across the neck of sea from the Gulf of Anadir, he finished. And if it ever does come, the people of the States will at last face the tragic realization of what Alaska could have meant to the nation. The force of old spirit surged uppermost in Allen again, and after that, for an hour or more, something lived for him in the glow of the fire which Olaf kept burning. It was the memory of Mary Standish, her quiet, beautiful eyes gazing at him, her pale face taking form in the lacy wisps of birch smoke. His mind pictured her in the flame-glow as she had listened to him that day in Skagway, when he had told her of this fight that was ahead, and it pleased him to think she would have made this same fight for Alaska if she had lived. It was a thought which brought a painful thickening in his breath, for always these visions which Olaf could not see ended with Mary Standish as she had faced him in his cabin, her back against the door, her lips trembling, and her eyes softly radiant with tears in the broken pride of that last moment of her plea for life. He could not have told how long he slept that night. Dreams came to him in restless slumber, and always they awakened him, so that he was looking at the stars again and trying not to think. In spite of the grief in his soul, they were pleasant dreams, as though some gentle force were at work in him, subconsciously, to wipe away the shadows of tragedy. Mary Standish was with him again, between the mountains at Skagway. She was at his side, in the heart of the tundras, the sun in her shining hair and eyes, and all about them the wonder of wild roses and purple iris and white seas of sedge-cotton and yellow-eyed daisies, and birds singing in the gladness of summer. He heard the birds, and he heard the girl's voice answering them in her happiness, and turning that happiness from the radiance of her eyes upon him. When he awoke, it was with a little cry, as if someone had stabbed him, and Olaf was building a fire, and dawn was breaking in rose-gleams over the mountains. End of chapter 11